I have one main aim this morning as your pastor, and that is that you would see sin more seriously when we're done than you did when you came in, all right? So that's my main goal this morning, is that you would see sin seriously, which means I've got some difficult things to say, some hard things to say. They fit within the current series that we're in. You've been warned for multiple weeks that there may be times during this series that there will be some sensitive subjects discussed. This is one of those weeks, probably the pinnacle of this series in which we're going to do that. But it's not so that you think I'm weird or that our church is weird. If you're a guest or maybe you're a new attender and you're like, man, they talk about really plain, honest stuff in that room. We do on purpose. But all of this is designed so that that you and I together, when we leave, will take sin more seriously than than when you came in. That's my goal. I want to do that in two ways this morning. I want to analyze our passage, the three verses, 18 through 20, which conclude the nine verses we've been looking at this month. If you are a guest or this is your first week, maybe you're back from time time away, I'd love to review all that, but time does not allow me. So go to our website and check on the other two messages. They're there. You can watch or listen, and that'll catch up to speed so we can just continue to make tracks this morning beginning in verse 18, all right? So we're going to do that first by analyzing the passage. Then we're going to apply the point of the passage. And we're going to just um, really ask God to help us see sin in the serious way uh, that we should. Now here's what's going to happen to you emotionally today. I think you'll probably dip with me and, and there'll be a point in which we'll all be under the weight and guilt of sin. You'll see what I'm saying. There'll there'll be some emotional effects to this. You'll be like, man, who can stand up to this? Some of that will be conviction by the Holy Spirit, which we we think is good. Some of that will be man-made guilt, which is not good. We'll have to let you figure out which is which, and the Holy Spirit will work with us. But there will be a sense in which we'll be kind of diving, and you'll feel the weight of that, but we will come out of that with the glorious truth of the gospel, okay? And I've been praying all week that God will just continually help us even while we see the seriousness of sin, that he will overcome and empower us to see the gloriousness of the gospel, all right? So that's our trek ahead today. And the goal of, of course, this is that as we show sin's seriousness, that you will deal with sin's deep root, which I've been maintaining, contending, that sin's deep root is all about the myth of autonomy, that you actually belong to yourself, that I belong to myself, that we are our own people. We're self-made men and women. We own our bodies. And the truth is, according to the Bible, in explicit terms, we don't. We're not our own. We are God's. And so in, in just very explicit language, autonomy is a myth. Instead, we fall under the truth of, can anybody say the word we've made up and are using? Bautonomy. The Bible says we've been purchased with a price. We've been bought. And so we want to come up under bautonomy. And the more we embrace bautonomy, the more we reject the myth of autonomy, I'm convinced we will see sin in its appropriate seriousness and deal with it. Now, I will mainly be helping us deal with sin's deep root and helping you see its seriousness through Scripture today. That's what pastors do. Uh, that's my, uh, my aim with you is to feed you well each week, to pastor you as a flock and to bring you uh, green pasture, so to speak. And so I mainly stay in the scriptures. I don't do a lot of storytelling. I, and you know that. I'm not the world's best at application, but I'll bring you the doctrine. I'll bring you the scripture and I'll feed it to you straight. But that doesn't mean other things aren't helpful. It just means that when we're here together, we have limited time. And so let's give it the priority, and that's the word of God. But other things are helpful. And two things that I want to give you today that are helpful along the lines of this subject of seeing sin seriously, especially sexual sin, and dealing with its deep root, one is an article and the other is a booklet. So if you'll go to one of our social media sites, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, go to our website, uh, you'll, you'll find there an article called How Sex Became King. 
It's an excellent, insightful piece that has much for you to kind of consider theologically and culturally. There's also a booklet there that has the most recent stats on pornography, both in the church and in the culture. It is eye-opening, and it will help you begin to see sin seriously. In fact, that's the point of S cubed, S3, whatever you call it, right? Is that you'll see this today pop up several times. I want you to do what? Say it with me. See sin seriously. So we're going to focus on the scriptures. Those two other things are very helpful to you. So go to our website, go to one of our social media sites. You'll see links there between services and then throughout the week. If you don't have any internet access, I have a few hard copies up here. If those are gone and you still want some, just see me. I'll make sure our office gets those to you. Because I want us to see sin seriously and deal with its deep root. And in doing so, we'll see the gospel even more gloriously. So let's dive into our text this morning, can we? I won't read all of the nine verses we've been looking at this month. I'm going to begin in verse 18 where we left off last week, which is really Paul's first imperative in this section. This is a nine-verse closing section to what I think is a longer uh, grouping of subjects. It begins in chapter 3. He's closing this out with these nine verses in chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And in verse 18, he comes to his first imperative in this set of nine verses. And again, this just really highlights the seriousness of sin, especially sexual sin. With this first imperative, the first four words, flee from sexual immorality. You see that? It means to run away from, uh, get away, leave the scene of the crime. (laughs) Don't stay close, hit the trail, make tracks, get out of Dodge, however you want to say it. Paul is saying clearly, because of the the seriousness of sin and and what we're doing when we sin in a sexual way especially, and you can read the previous verses to see that, he says, get away from sexual immorality. Flee from it. I, I do think he probably was thinking of some of the Old Testament writings in the latter part of Genesis when Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. He just got out of town, didn't he? Paul also told Timothy on several occasions, flee from immorality. So this is not a new thought in one sense. And Paul is maintaining and and emphasizing there are moments when perhaps due to hormones, circumstances, situations, your best tactic is to leave, run away. So let's just be real frank here. In this first imperative that Paul gives, uh, it's, it's um, prudent, wise, that when you feel temptation towards sexual immorality, don't think you can just manage it on the spot. Get out of the location. Get away, run away. And I think one reason that, that maybe we tend to not want to do this is because we think that if we run away, we're admitting that you, we wanted it. Like, well, if I run away, that's kind of like saying, well, I really wanted it, so I had to run away. I don't think it's saying that. I think it's saying that it wants you. Sin wants you. Sin wants to steal, to kill, to destroy. It's out to get you. And it will capitalize. It will try to seize you. Remember, sin always disguises, divides, and destroys. And sometimes you don't notice it's sin until suddenly you... The mask is off and you're in this situation like, oh my, what's going on? Man, if it's involving sexual immorality, get away, run. Who cares what anyone thinks? Get out of Dodge. I always remember the day my wife was at Walmart in line and a man approached her, leaned into her and said, you are gorgeous. You know what she didn't do? She didn't reason with the guy why she didn't think she was. She didn't say, well, let's debate this. Let's talk about it. Or she didn't give the guy my number. Rats, right? (laughs) You know what she did? She didn't even look at him. I'm not sure exactly all the details, but she left pronto. Maybe she left things on the counter. I don't know. All I know is she said, I'm going to stay here. And it's not because she wanted that. She was aware of something. Sin wanted her. 
So there's no one here above this command. When you sense temptation coming your way, especially regarding sexual immorality, if you think you can manage it, deal with it, you must think you're better than King David and King Solomon. You're not and I'm not. Here's a good idea. Let's flee the scene. Now what's good about this verse is Paul doesn't just give this command without some reasoning. In other words, he doesn't just give you a what and then leave you high and dry. He gives us a why. This is what the rest of the verse unfolds for us. Look at verse 18, beginning of the fifth word. Here's why we flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. There's the remainder of this passage, and if you'll notice... It has an interesting, what I would call a chiastic, um, and I would even say unintended uh, structure. In other words, chiastic structure means that something is, is reasoned with us going A, B, C, B, A. There's a pattern to it. And I don't think this is intentional personally. I don't know if Paul did this on purpose, but it works out this way in the translation. Notice with me. He makes a command in verse 18, right? Flee. You notice at the end of verse 20, there's the second imperative, glorify. Do you see that? So you have two commands bookending this set of verses. After each command, you have, or after the first command and before the last command, you have a statement. And in the middle of all this is a question. So if you were to put this in a chiastic way, you'd say that Paul is making a command, a statement, asking a question, which is rhetorical, and then a statement and a command. So you could call it A, B, C, B, A. But it helps us remember what's going on here. What Paul is doing is raising the stakes. He's elevating our view of how sin is very serious by, by a command, a statement, a question, a statement, and a command. And we'll cover more about the last command next week. I want us to focus mainly on this first aspect so that we see sin's seriousness. And Paul's reasoning for fleeing from sexual immorality, Paul's argument for how serious it is is rooted in verse 18 in this odd phrase every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body he's saying there's a, a uniqueness to sexual sin this is why you should flee from it uh, I hope you're wondering like I am, what does that mean to sin against your own body? And what does it mean by every other sin is outside the body? Those are great questions. I love it when you ask those. I love to answer them too. So what do we dig into that? Because this really is the, the, the gist of his argument. Why should we flee? Why is it so serious? What's going on with sexual sin? Is it really different than other sins? Is it worse? Is it deeper? What's going on here, Todd? Okay. Well, let's analyze this phrase, and I think what you should know first of all about this phrase is that the, the, the word outside the body, you see that phrase outside, and the word against are key words here. They're both words of location. In other words, the first verse means outside of a contained area, not part of a, of a unit. And the word against means inside a contained area. In fact, I think the word against could, could be translated at times in. Contained. So they're, they're words of location for sure. Knowing that, we really arrive at three options for how to see this phrase. Because frankly, Paul doesn't describe or define what this phrase means in this text. He doesn't tell us. He actually assumes that the readers would know. Just kind of makes a statement and moves on, doesn't he? So he must have known they knew what he meant. And I think we can as well. There's three views you can kind of land on. The first one's what I call the third excuse view. So look with me at verse 12 and verse 13 for a moment. Let's back up to week one, can we? And do you see that there are a couple of phrases that are in quotes? Such as in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. Do you see that? It's in quotes in your translation. And then in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's in quotes. Some translators and commentators think this phrase should also be in quotes. The very first phrase, which says, every other sin a man commits is outside the body. They consider that to be the third 
cultural rationalization that Paul is using that people in that culture were giving for sinning sexually. Here's why they say that. Because in the original languages, the word other, do you see that in verse 18? The word other is not in the original language. It is supplied. Now, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be there. But you won't find a, a, a word-for-word translation that includes the word other. So in the most technical sense, stay with me, don't lose me. In the most technical sense, the beginning of verse 18, or this second part, says every sin a person commits is outside the body. So they're saying this, because of that fact, that the word other is not in the original language, this, is must, this must have been a quote in which folks are saying, hey, listen, sin's no big deal. It's outside the body. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Uh, everything's legal for me and permissible. And you know what? After all, no sin is really part of the body. Does that make sense? So they're using this as a third excuse to continue to sin sexually. Because, hey, it's, it's outside the body. That's one view, one way to see this. Obviously, the translators of, of this, uh, the ESV, didn't buy that. They didn't put it in quotes. They feel like it's actually a legitimate uh, use of the word other to distinguish sexual sin from other sins. So if that's the case, what's going on? That would be view number two, what I call the unique nature view. And what I mean by this is that the view is that sexual sin has a unique nature about it. In other words, is there's a qualitative difference between sexual sin and other sins. What is the difference? Watch me here. It's that in sexual sin, you actually are joining your body with another body. Only in sexual sin does that happen. There's no other sin in which you would join your body in an intimate way and then consequently give mastery of your body to someone else which is really Paul's point in this text, isn't it? You don't own your body, so why would you give it that way to another? Why would you take the members of Christ? Remember the words we looked at last week? Members, join, and one. They were all words that helped us see that we're in union with Christ. He's saying in sexual sin, you're actually doing that which shows the opposite. And that's the only sin in which that occurs. So it is a unique sin in its qualitative nature. The third view would be what we call the unique consequence view. And some would say the phrase against his body means that sexual sin contains a unique consequence. They would compare this to Romans 127, which describes sexual sin and says those who commit these things, they experience the consequences in their body. You can check the verse out with your small group. What does that mean and what's going on there? They would say this is similar to that, that something happens to the person consequentially as a result of their sin sexually. Now, where do I land? First of all, none of these views are going to de uh, determine your eternal security. We all say to that, amen, hallelujah. Um, so we don't want to debate this endlessly. But here's where I land. I think the context proves it. I land with number two. I can see number one, actually, you know, a little bit. I can see that. I, I tend to trust the translators um, and the amount of manuscripts and the ways they look at what should be supplied. And I think number two fits the context best because he makes a strong case in all nine verses to talk about the bodies joining together. He uses the words member, uh, one flesh, the word join. So these are all phrases that I think help us see that there is a, a qualitative difference in sexual sin. Now listen very carefully. Although it's not necessarily the worst sin, it is the most unique in its character. That's what we're saying. And it's because sexual intimacy is the deepest uniting of two persons. And so this sexual sin displays the misuse and misownership of the body in the deepest way. You see, if you were to ask why certain other sins, such as anger, drunkenness, Murder, gossip. You know, are these any less against the body? I think if we ask that, we're, we're actually dismissing and refusing to acknowledge the context of Paul's primary point and his main illustration, which is that sexual sin is uniquely body joining. It's uniquely one fleshing. It's actually member defiling. That word sexual immorality is used three times in these nine verses. 
It's a sin against the body's rightful ownership. Remember, your body, according to this text, is a member of and joined to Christ, verses 12 to 15. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit, verse 19, and it was purchased by God, verse 20. And so, no other sin threatens to put the body under the mastery of something or someone else like sexual immorality. In that way, it is against the body and unique in its qualitative constitution. Now, there's a couple of other questions I want to wrap to grapple with and wrestle with. Questions that will help us kind of continue to see sin in all of its seriousness, okay? Because I think, first of all, understanding this verse helps us see sin in its seriousness. That it's unique in that way. No other sin pictures the, the, the violation we're doing to Christ's body like sexual sin. There's some other questions that you may be wondering about that I think will help us continue to see sin seriously. You may be wondering, well, Todd... Whose body is being referred to in these verses? Here's why I want to explain this. In verse 18, there's a singular pronoun at the end of the verse. Look with me, would you? It says, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's a singular pronoun. But as the rest of the verses unfold, all the pronouns change to plural. And it's hard to see this in the English translation, but in the original language... Beginning in verse 19, it's your body speaking to the whole church. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. There's a plural, whom you, plural, have from God. You, plural, are not your own. So he's speaking individually and plurally. He's speaking singularly and yet collectively. So if I were to answer the question, whose body is he referring to to help us see sin seriously, I would say both. He's saying to you, your body matters. It's made by God for God. And yet, watch this, don't lose me, every ear, every eye. His body matters. And in all truthfulness, your body is his body, right? That's the whole point of autonomy. So your body, which is his body, matters, but his body collectively, the church matters. I think Paul is almost unintentionally having a play on words here. By using both singular and plural pronouns, he's saying, guys, sexual sin, yes, it affects your body, but it affects our body which is altogether his body, correct? So a lot to grapple with there. But I think what it does is it raises the stakes of how we see sin, and that's what we need right now. The second question you may be wondering is this. What is the sin of sexual immorality? You've been using that word, Todd, uh, for three weeks. It's in here three times. But what is the sin of sexual immorality? There's probably a number of things we're thinking of. Good question. The word is pornea, and it's an all-encompassing kind of like tent word. It can include a lot of things, and in some places it does. The question is, what does it mean in these verses? That's a very good question. My sense and my understanding is that this is referring to wrong sexual intercourse. Not just any sin like pornography, which is a sin, or lust, which is a sin, yes, and do those lead to the final physical act of wrong sexual intercourse outside the guidelines and bounds of marital covenant? Yes. But what is Paul actually saying in these verses? And where this text stays is where I want to stay, okay? I think the text is pretty clear that there's a, something physical happening. He's talking about members of Christ being joined to members of a prostitute. That's the sexual act he's referring to. I think the historical context of the temple being used in what we call cultic worship. And so there were prostitutes available at the temple. And men would go to the temple. And in an act of worship to God would have sex with prostitutes and thinking it was okay. And so what Paul has in mind here is the actual act of wrong, sinful, sexual intercourse. I think that's the meaning of the phrase sexual immorality. I'm not demeaning or lessening other sins. I'm simply saying to be as close to the text as possible, what Paul says, let's just stay where he stays. And so, regardless of where you fall on the answer to that question or some of the phrases, here's what I think we can all agree on. None of those answers, if they're different, negate or change Paul's overriding point in these final three verses of this chapter, which is this. Sin 
especially sexual sin, is a serious matter. You may think is that number one's the view. You may think he means a whole host of sins. Man, no problem. We can disagree on some of the answers. We can have our own reasoning for getting there. I think you can appreciate a pastor who lands on a certain place and tells you why. But here's what we can all agree on. Here's what we'd come up in unity under that man. Regardless of how you see the answers to some specific questions and phrases, Paul is raising the stakes on how we see sexual sin. That's the boat I want you to row with me this morning. Again, regarding sexual sin specifically, it's warned against uniquely here because it is a brazen bodily demonstration of wrong mastery and ownership. Not only about your body, but about the other person's body. Both people are saying, we own ourselves, we'll do what we want. And nothing pictures the myth of autonomy in a physical bodily way like sexual sin. But let's also expand this. Categorically, sin is a spiritual violation of Christ's body in two ways. Personal, yours which he owns, and then corporate. This one, all of us together, which he owns. And he paid for both of them. Sin is spiritual immorality. It's breaking our marital covenant to Christ. It's playing around on Jesus. Unless you think I'm overstating the case, I would remind you of, of this fact. Listen very intently. In the Old Testament, the prophets were known to make my language look tame. I know I have a reputation for being somewhat of a bold, kind of in-your-face speaker. I'm good with that. I have no problems with that. But if I were compared to the Old Testament prophets, you'd think I was Mickey Mouse. Read Jeremiah. Read Hosea. As they came to the children of Israel and said, you are committing whoredom as God's people. In fact, there are some parts of the Old Testament especially Jeremiah, that are so sexually explicit that the original translators of the King James Bible had difficulty knowing if they should even put the translation in as it was word for word. One of those, and I'll just say what it is, is in Jeremiah 2 and 3 in which the prophet says to God's people who have been involved in centuries of idolatry, much like here in Corinth when they were committing sexual acts in worship, and also spiritually, just, just abandoning God's covenant. Jeremiah said this about them. He said, you know, you're, you go to every high hill and spread your legs. That's pretty explicit. The translators worried, how do we put this in the Bible? And so some translations say it differently than others. But in the most uh, literal way, that's what Jeremiah said to them. So words like whoredom, harlot, adultery were used to speak of the sin of God's people when they would abandon him. Do you see why they would use those words? Because sexual sin pictures in the most unique way what sin does overall. And they're not alone. James does this. James 4. When speaking to those believers who were trying to be friends with the world... And be friends with God. You know what he called them? He said, you are an adulterous people. See, this is stark, bold language. It's emphatic, explicit language. Why? We're not trying to create some kind of shock and awe. We just want you to see sin seriously. And truthfully, church, sexual immorality is just the brazen physical picture of the horrific nature of sin spiritually. It's a violation of our relationship with Christ, and that's serious business. So let me put this in a single sentence for you. Here's how I'd say it. Here's our big idea. Sexual sin is uniquely serious because it demonstrates physically what every sin does spiritually. 
It violates Christ's body individually and collectively. Now, because I'm not the only one rowing this boat, I want to have you read it with me. I want you to enter into this, these dark waters together, okay? I told you this would happen. We would be diving down, and, and we're there. This is serious business. I want us to be here for a bit. So, so here's what 18 through 20, especially the beginning parts, are saying to us. Read it with me. But sexual sin is uniquely serious because it demonstrates physically what every sin does spiritually, violates Christ's body individually and collectively. So Todd, is there any hope? I mean, you're probably like, whoo. If you're visiting, you're a guest like, man, what have I stepped into today? I hope what you're thinking is, at least this guy's honest with me. He's coming straight from the word, and he's not pulling any punches. So how do we move forward from this? Using some verses here as well as other parts of the Bible, I want to give you some ways to move forward so that we begin to climb out of this, like, wow, if this is all there is, who has hope? Because the gospel gives us hope, right? What do you say we begin to see the hope of the gospel? And I'd first say, to move forward, here's the first thing. Just receive forgiveness divinely, okay? And I want to ask you to look back at a verse that we mentioned in week one. It's verse 11 of chapter 6. It's the beginning verse, so to speak, of, of this. Well, it's the ending verse of the previous section. And notice what Paul says. This is so beautiful, church, because we try to avoid these labels. But the church at Corinth is like, hey, that's us. We are the adulterers. We are the thieves. We're the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers. We're the sexually immoral. Do you see that in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10? That's them. And Paul's saying, guys, this should not be so among you. This is not how members of Christ should act. And why? Because verse 11 says, such were some of you. And I would say to us, and me included, this is what we are, church. Don't run from the label of sinner. We've all been tagged with it. Watch this. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified. And right there, stop and listen. Not by anything you did. Not because you turned over a new leaf, because you kind of rounded the corner. You, you know, you got a little more of this positive thinking in you. The, the text tells us that we were washed and sanctified and justified after being these horrific sinners in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, salvation came into our life. The gospel rescued us from our darkness. Man, I'm so thankful. I don't stand before you today as a perfect man with a perfect past. Some silver spoon kid who raised in his Christian home and a Christian school and a Christian university and a Christian seminary. And man, you don't know what it's like. That's not me and that's not you. We are all tainted in some way by sin. But guess what? The gospel washes us, sanctifies us, justifies us. Amen, church. This is why the very first thing all of us need to ask ourselves is, have I received forgiveness divinely? Not by another man or a woman or a system. I want to ask you this. Have you received forgiveness from God and his forgiveness comes through his son, Jesus Christ, who when he died on the cross and for three hours hung naked, he was the sin offering for all the sin of mankind. First John would say this, he died for our sins, but not for our sins only, for the sins of the whole world. And in those three hours, Jesus Christ paid for every sin that was and would be committed against the holiness of God. And he could do that in three hours because he was God in the flesh. He died and was buried, and then God raised him on the third day as vindication of the sacrifice. And so now, and we say this so much at this church, and I'm so glad we do, all who would believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ can experience divine forgiveness. And trust me, that's what you need. Your wife can forgive you for what you did. Your husband can forgive you what you did. That helps horizontally, but it doesn't change your soul. It doesn't wash away your sins. It just makes things right this way. And that's important. That helps. 
There's only one who can positionally make you righteous when you're not. It's God. And he does that through the work of Jesus Christ alone. And so the question I ask you is this, to every single person here, have you put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ as the only way to receive forgiveness? You say, I don't know if I have, Todd. Then I, got, I got an idea. Right now, just say, God, would you through Jesus forgive me of my sin? And would you wash me? And you know what God will do? God will wash you and forgive you right now. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I hope you hear your pastor saying to you, it's, it's serious a business, this sin thing is, you're right. But the cross is far more glorious. And it's our hope. I urge all of you to receive forgiveness divinely through the cross of Christ and the mercy and grace of God. And just call out to him, to forgive you through Jesus, and he will do exactly that. I just want to speak to you personally about this because I know what this feels like. I know the meaning of Psalm 32 when it says, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. You know, Julie and I, we crossed some lines and we were dating. We did. I regret that. I sinned against her. I don't know, I remember when that happened and, and we both were so convicted It's God to forgive us and we set in place some new parameters. First of all, the forgiveness felt great. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not afraid to say to you, man, we know the, the real life experience of Psalm 32. Happy is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered. Amen. And on the heels of that forgiveness, we begin to set in place some really what we call to this day weird rules, some hard parameters so that we would not be tempted in that way and fall. We wanted to run from sexual immorality. And that brings me to my second point. Moving forward means you must practice and pursue physical purity. Now listen very carefully to me here. I'm not saying that other kinds of purity doesn't matter. Spiritual purity, emotional purity, those things are important. But this text is concerning physical purity, all right? And again, I'm going to stay where the text stays for the most part. And when I go out of that, I'll just tell you it's my opinion. But in this text, Paul is calling for bodily purity. So I want to say to you, set some boundaries. Young people who are down here on these first two or three rows, set boundaries. No parameters. K-N-O-W. Not the other way around, all right? <laughs> know the parameters. Don't cross them. And set them in advance. Because in the moment, you won't set them. You'll have a hard time remembering them in the moment. But if you'll set them in advance, make them fence markers and guideposts. Like, we will not cross this line or this line. We'll run from this kind of sin. Man, that would be a tremendous asset as you pursue purity physically. In just clear language, I'll extend this clarion call to you. No hookups. No affairs. No adultery. None. Those are physical sins that are wrong. And if you think, they don't happen in the church, then wake up. This booklet that I'm giving to you, whether you get it online or here, it shows us stats from pornography. And much of them are the same in the church as the culture. Some studies show us that that the divorce rate is about the same in the church and the culture. I don't know how much of those things are true because there's other studies that show differently. But here's where my greatest concern is. I, I can't believe we're even debating that fact. Our sexual ethic should make us so distinct that there's no question we belong to God. The idea that a Christian could be in a bar and looking for a hookup. That we would consider sexual 
intimacy with someone who's not our spouse. May that be far from us. May Paul's words be true. May it never be. So I want to call you clearly to a holy Ephesians 5 lifestyle. No affairs, no hookups, no adultery, no divorce, please. It's bodily purity. Other purity matters, yes, but let's not refrain from making a clear call to Christians who belong to Christ. Part of physical purity and pursuing that means enjoying sex correctly. Do you know that? In fact, as chapter 7 of this same book unfolds, Paul begins to lay out guidelines for sex between husband and wife. And he says in there that you no longer own your body, but your spouse does. So we won't get into that today, but there's even a whole other view of autonomy, right? And so your body is for your spouse's pleasure. So watch this, church. One of the ways to pursue physical purity is to enjoy marital sex correctly so that there's not this um, absence and void that would make someone or, or be, be for someone a temptation to look elsewhere. So I want to encourage you, man, enjoy your spouse. As Proverbs 5 would say, enjoy the wife of your youth. Solomon told his sons, let her ravish you. These are good spiritual words. They're hard to hear in a church. I get that, okay? You're a little awkward right now. I'm a little awkward too, okay? But it's high time the church address honest, practical matters and say to you that physical purity matters and one of the ways we pursue that is by enjoying God-given marital covenant sex correctly. Now, I'll tell you more about that by asking you to read chapter six of my book called Home Run. The name of the chapter is called Grand Slam Sex. And uh, I won't go into it here, but I will encourage it. It takes you through 1 Corinthians 7 and walks you through how spouses can relate so that they're pursuing not only physical purity by rejecting any form of sexual morality, but they're also embracing their God-given gift of each other to one another. I'm going to pause here a little longer and, and talk to you about one other thing in regards to physical purity. Some think that purity isn't possible because they lost their virginity. But I want to speak to you plainly and say to you that virginity and purity are two different things. I'm not lessening one, so don't hear what I'm not saying. Virginity is a physical issue, and you can lose it once and for all. Purity is not. It's what God gives us and restores to us. Both are beautiful gifts, but my point in this section is to extol the grace of God in the lives of sinners like me, like you, like us, who are not pure in and of ourselves, regardless of the extent of our sexual sin or the toll it's taken. The truth is, by God's grace, in Christ's blood, you can be pure. I love what Isaiah said in chapter one. Though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Hallelujah for the cross. Amen. Where Jesus took every one of our sins, which made us all impure, and he washed them away, and he calls us righteous. Man, hallelujah for Jesus' work for us. So all of that to say to you, pursue purity physically. Flee from immorality. Set good boundaries. No purity is possible. Rooted in Christ. Love your spouse. Enjoy them. And when temptation comes knocking at your door, man, you hit the road. And you stay faithful and committed to your marital covenant. The last two points I would say are this. Value the body doubly. In other words, value your body because it belongs to God and don't sin against it in a sexual way. Yes. But value this body as well. Because when you sin personally, it affects us corporately. So if you've got bitterness towards someone... If you're entertaining a wrong relationship with someone, 
If you're gossiping, backbiting, if you're stealing, if you're lying, if you're sabotaging, if you're dividing, stop. Value your body and our body enough to stop sinning. Take it seriously. Let's run to reconciliation. And as you do that, you may end up still disagreeing with that person on something. But guess what? If you'll seek reconciliation, even in your disagreement, you will at least stop destroying each other. That comes when we value the body doubly. And we quit sinning not only sexually within the church, but we quit sinning in other ways in the church because we know it affects our body and our body. <laughs> Lastly, confess sin regularly. Now, this is a little different than the first point. Let me explain it to you doctrinally, and we'll be wrapping up. We're going to land the plane, okay? Receiving forgiveness divinely is when God forgives you positionally once and for all. It's called salvation. The moment you turn to faith, turn to Christ in faith and repentance, he forgives you through Christ once and for all. But then there's the practical side of that. What 1 John says, as we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from the righteousness. We say that there are, and then in the daily life, moments we, bring, we just confess our sins. Because we're not perfect, we continue to sin against God in various ways. We do want to sin less, but we know we won't reach sinlessness until he comes again. And so this idea of daily confession is not getting saved all over again. It's not that at all. Nothing changes in your position. What's happening is you're experiencing the practical aspect of his forgiveness. And so we engage in confession, just like 1 John 1 says. We walk in the light as he is in the light. And the Bible says that when we walk in the light, which is simply an open and honest attitude about our sin, when we do that, the blood of Christ cleanses us and we have good fellowship with God and with each other. And some of the reasons some of you are struggling to relate to others and to God is because you're hiding and masking and disguising your sin. You can't imagine being labeled with this group in 1 Corinthians. This is what some of you were. He's oh, it wasn't me. Oh, actually, it is you. It's me. We are all sinners. But guess what? The gospel came to us. You heard the truth. You surrendered, you trusted Christ. And so he's washed you, he's sanctified you, he's justified you, he's made you pure. So though we don't rejoice in our sin, we don't run from that label either, we are thankful that God forgives sinners. Amen? And so as forgiven sinners, we continue to confess our sin regularly. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, He that confesses and forsakes his sin shall find mercy. You know where mercy is found? In confession. So I want to embolden you to not run from this beautiful practice of confessing your sin. Here's a practice that has helped me a lot in confession. I typically and usually will just try to pray above a whisper. And I'm not with anyone when I do this. I'm not with Julie or our kids. This is in my own private time, sometimes in the car. I try to pray just above a whisper because here's why, especially in confession, when you pray just above a whisper and you hear your own sins, you know what it does? I don't have a verse for this, and this is more my opinion here, but psychologically, it raises the stakes of your sin. You begin to hear what you thought and said and did and against a person, against God, and suddenly, your soul is ravaged. Like, what, what's, what's up with me? But then the grace of God steps in and says, I've got you, there's hope, the gospel's true. And, and you just experience the practical aspect of forgiveness every day as you confess your sin just above a whisper. It's actually very spiritually healthy for you. You begin to feel the mercy of God on you. And you experience the blessedness of being forgiven. So these four things are ways to move forward. And they're all rooted in the gospel. All of them point to Jesus. He's our only hope. So this morning, I want to close by doing this. I want to invite you to a few moments of confession. Not publicly, but just there in your seat. 
And I'm going to offer this to you. That if you'd like prayer from one of our church leaders, we'd love to come right to your seat and just pray with you. And right now, here's what's in your head. I'd never admit that. And there's the, there is the problem with sin. You're not dealing with this deep root. You're thinking, I'm my own person. I'm protecting my image. I, I got to look good. There's the problem. So for a few minutes as we go to prayer, if you would just like prayer, just like, Todd, I want to see sin seriously. I'm confessing sin to God. I want to deal with this deep root. Just hold your hand up. And we'll have one of our leaders, our elders, our deacons, our staff, small group leaders, just come and just say a quick prayer with you. It's not magic, okay? But it is what James talks about, confessing our faults to one another. So I'm just going to leave us in a time of confession as we leave this morning, kind of repentance. The band's going to join me. And we're just going to pray and ask the Lord to do some good work in our heart, okay? That we would see sin seriously and in response, confess it regularly. So would you bow your heads with me, please? And just begin talking to God, would you? Go ahead and name those things that Satan has come to you with in disguise. And you don't want those to destroy you. Go ahead and recall the beautiful cross of our Lord Jesus. So that it becomes more glorious than your sin. More attractive, more beautiful than what Satan would offer you. Jesus dying in your place. Think about all of your sins piled up, church. And man, we've all got a list of them, don't we? We've got a stack of them, a closet full of them. You know, all of those sins, guess what? The cross stands taller and mightier and greater and stronger. And there's not a single sin that will overcome the cross of Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.